Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording January 27th, 2023, you'll hear the first part of a panel discussion on non-traditional security challenges in the Indo-Pacific, featuring Kyoko Kuara, Charles Burton, Malcolm Davis, and moderated by our own Charlotte Duval Antoine. This discussion took place during our conference on peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Davy Shipyard. Founded in 1825, Davy is a premier builder of advanced specialized icebreakers and many other ships for the government of Canada and the private sector. As Canada's longest established, largest and highest capacity shipbuilder, Davy has delivered many of the most pioneering vessels ever built in Canada. Davy generates thousands of good jobs and billions of dollars for Canada's economy. Through its work, Davy is helping to build a sustainable marine industry, combat climate change, defend sovereignty, support trade, generate exports, and unleash the potential of the communities it serves. Hi, everyone. Uh, you've been uh, seeing me uh, running around, but uh, now I'm here and, and sitting down. It's fantastic. Uh, so perfect uh, opportunity today to talk about some of the conversations we had this morning that actually extend to the conversation we want to have this afternoon. Uh, Dick Fadden mentioned that Canada had limited hard power capacity, and Aditi Malotra mentioned that Canada needs to figure out what potential partners from want from Canada. So we're going to look at this, but from more of a softer power and non-traditional security issues. So we're going to start with Kyoko, uh, who will deliver five minutes remarks. Kyoko. Oh, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I am Kyoko Kuahara, a visiting fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute here in Ottawa. Also, um, I am a research fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs. So today, I would like to talk about some of the uh, cognitive uh, domain, the security of the, in the cognitive domain, uh, which is um, uh, in, which, uh, including uh, disinformation campaigns, foreign disinformation campaigns. So with the rapid development of information and communication technologies, the social media has um, become a game changer and information has become a key driver in this non-traditional security. So because it makes critical impact on the war situation, as we have seen in the Russian uh, Ukraine war, also on the um, uh, social uh, society or maybe uh, people's lives as health, as we have seen Corona pandemic, which is um, what we call sometimes uh, hybrid warfare or maybe gray zone, gray zone situation. So in this modern era, varieties of information has has flooded all over the world through social media and they are difficult to distinguish what is true or false or maybe uh, whether the actors ha uh, who has spread the disinformation or information has malicious intent or not it is said that there are five battlefields in the traditional or conventional security which is land sea air, space, and cyber. But the cognitive domain could become another battlefield um, if we think of the current security situation. So let's talk a little bit about Japan's uh, security perception in terms of cognitive domain. Japan now recognizes the current security situation as the most severe and complex uh, since the Second World War and it has just launched the revised version of the national security strategy last uh, December. So 
in that um, in the securities uh, new revised version of the national security strategy um, there is something overlooked because um, most of the media Western media also as well as Japanese domestic media has paid so much attention on maybe let's say defense uh, defense capability or uh, counter-strike capability but uh, there is something overlooked the cognitive domain in the new uh, newly realized and added into the Japan's uh, cognitive I mean Japan's conventional security perception according to the strategy it is stated that Japan will strengthen its ability to address the information warfare, including foreign disinformation campaign in with the 10 years time framework. Also, um, the reality or real possibility of the uh, Taiwan Strait contingency has drawn so many attentions among Japanese policymakers, scholars and researchers. It is said that in the uh, event, in the event, China would develop the information warfare, including um, some disinformation campaigns, not only in Taiwan, but also in Japan. So I would say that this is not on one of the most important updates in the national security strategy. So Japan has been lagging far behind in its countermeasures against disinformation campaigns and has not taken particular uh, countermeasures in terms of let's say policy, organizational structure, and regulations. This is largely because of the fact that Japan has never been seriously affected by foreign um, disinformation campaigns because it has historically or linguistically isolated from foreign countries, which, uh, is, which is sometimes called Galapagos syndrome or Iceland syndrome. So therefore, countermeasure has not been developed. So given those, we could evaluate Japan's effort to align with other partners and allies in terms of non-traditional security. On the other hand, it is not easy for all countries, all democracies to take countermeasures in this area in a, in a democratic way. Because as we have seen um, some cases around the world, in some part of the area around the world, uh, if a countermeasures goes to the wrong direction, it could possibly become a suppression freedom of the speech, freedom of the press. However, we shouldn't be given up with um, fighting against disinformation in order to protect our democracy. So there are some countermeasures while protecting democracy in a democratic way. For instance, um, education, educating people um, to let them achieve critical thinking from an early stage of education uh, is the most, could be the one of the most effective or increased national deterrence as a whole. In addition, international cooperation and collaboration could be also effective. Canada um, has been seeking some international cooperation in fight against disinformation. As a leader in counter-disinformation cooperation among G7 members, for instance, Canada could lead the discussions among the members and uh, partners uh, more actively, although there are some uh, gaps between the member, among the member in terms of uh, internal policy or manpower or maybe threat perceptions. In terms of Canada-Japan cooperation, Japan will be hosting the next G7 summit in May 
uh, in Hiroshima, Japan, uh, as a chair. If Canada could encourage Japan, and if uh, Japan could uh, take its message in proper way, maybe both countries uh, would lead the discussion among the G7 members to make international countermeasures in this area, maybe one step forward. So using a Quad framework uh, could be another practice. So more cooperation and collaboration uh, could be sought among think tankers and researchers using G7 or Quad or maybe other frameworks uh, through joint researches and international conferences like this, uh, so that they could be more bridged uh, practically. So it could be done by maybe as a track 1.5 or uh, 2.0. So lastly, uh, maintaining security in the cognitive domain means maintaining the international order, peace, and stability. In the cognitive domain, an area without borders, countries and regions have the potential to work more closely together in order to protect democracy. This information threat has become more critical security issue day by day and international cooperation and collaboration will be truly significant in this area as a major. Thank you, Thank you very much, Kyoko. Charles? Uh, well, uh, I'd, I'd like to talk a bit about areas and platforms for cooperation and mitigating the national security threats engendered by China's political influence campaigns. Um, and, and first of all, uh, you know, we discussed the Canada's Indo-Pacific policy uh, this morning and, you know, it defines China as an increasingly disruptive global power. That strikes me as a bit mealy-mouthed. Um, you know, I, I think that our allies may be a bit more straightforward, use language that their national policy should regard China as a strategic competitor. I think what we're really talking about is China as an emerging strategic adversary and a strategic threat to Canada's uh, national security. And China's threat to the national security of all of our countries uh, derives from China's Communist Party, uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping's really obsession to redress what he perceives as China's loss of face and diminish national prestige by the rise of Japan in the West since the mid 19th century. He's talking about this all the time. In, uh, of course, I read Chinese, so I, I, I'm more focused on the domestic propaganda than the nice Davos version of China that, that we get in English. Um, but he does have his signature Chinese dream of national rejuvenation, his audacious plan to replace the world's liberal democratic international rules-based order with the China-centered, what he refers to as the community of the common destiny of mankind by 2050. And God knows what that means, but it really is about his notion of a triumphant imposition of Chinese Confucianist civilizational values, of which his Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era is the contemporary expression. So in the Indo-Pacific, China aspires to resume what it has this historiography of China's the big brother dominant role over the traditional neighboring Confucian subordinate kingdoms that should pay tribute to China every three years. They haven't asked for that yet. And of course, China wants US forces out of Korea and Japan. And then there's the larger plan for China to undertake a comprehensive rise to power 
and ultimately displace the U.S. as the superpower global hegemon. Now, how this works is you really have to look at the um, at the constitution of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, after all, the People's Liberation Army is the party's army, not the national army of China. And in that constitution, it says that the party exercises overall leadership over all areas of endeavor in every part of the country. And this is really where the, the non-traditional um, threat is implemented. Xi Jinping, quoting uh, his revolutionary uh, predecessor, Mao Zedong, uh, in the closing address to the party's 19th National Congress said, party, government, military, civilian, and academic, east, west, south, north, and center, the party leads everything. And a commentary by the, the New China News Agency after that Congress affirmed that the party's leadership is absolute, powerful, comprehensive, and unified. I think the unified is the critical element in understanding the non-traditional threats of the Chinese regime to us. You know, for example, business enterprises in China, regardless of whether they're state-owned or simply state, like simply Chinese, like Huawei, are all subject to direction and coordination by the Chinese Communist Party and are able to be deployed for non-commercial regime strategic purposes. And so what we're really looking at is a, an integrated party, state, military, security, industrial complex regime that has been able to fulfill the party's overall mandate to achieve technological and geostrategic domination over the West. That's the ambition. And so the, you know, we know that the mobilization of Chinese businesses to facilitate espionage is well established. And leaving aside the provisions of China's intelligence law requiring all Chinese citizens to collaborate with security and intelligence agencies when called upon to do so, the integrated nature of the regime allows for a smooth melding of profit motive and the pursuit of regime's geostrategic advantage. And there are many examples that show that geostrategic advantage always trumps economic benefits in any dealings with uh, China. And they have, uh, China's targeted 10 strategic advanced technology manufacturing industries for its promotion and development. And, uh, you know, uh, just next generation information technology, robotics, aircraft, um, we've seen that in a lot of recent spy cases, maritime vessels, advanced rail equipment, clean energy vehicles, um, electric generation and transmission equipment like batteries, um, agricultural machinery, new materials and biotechnology. And so what we see is a systematic program of economic coercion and retaliation for unfriendly, in inverted commas, uh, state Chinese policies. So economic coercion by the Chinese regime to pressure foreign governments to comply with Chinese non-economic demands on them is increasingly applied, employing the business actors. So, you know, there's so many examples of this, including Canadian examples, but thing is, I don't have a lot of time for this, I'll just give one, which is the South Korean Lotte conglomerate that had the, the uh, terminal high altitude uh, defense missile system installed on land previously used as a Lotte golf course. Lotte's operations in China were soon affected by simultaneous close down of their department stores on simultaneous false grounds of fire code violations. So all of a sudden, 
all the latte stores had problems with their fire code maintenance. And, and of course that affected their business quite seriously. And economic coercion is also a major characteristic of the Belt and Road Economic Initiative throughout the third world and associated geostrategic purposes such as uh, control of port facilities of high military value in Africa and, and primarily in Africa, some in Latin America. In, in a lot of ways, China's non-traditional security threat is like a, a game of uh, Go or Wei Qi. Um, uh, the literal meaning of that, of that Chinese board game is encirclement board game. And what you have is a squared off board and two players and each have a bowl of playing pieces that are called stones. And one player takes the white stones, that would be us. And the other player takes the black stones, that would be them. And the players take turns placing the stones on the vacant intersection, the points of the board. And the aim is to surround more territory than the opponent. And, you know, it's got simple rules, but the game is very complex. Some professional games exceed 16 hours and are paid, played in sessions spread over two days. But it's a game that was invented in China more than 2,500 years ago and is believed to be the oldest board game continuously played to the present day. And Wei Qi, or Go, is considered one of the four essential arts of the cultured aristocratic Chinese scholars in antiquity. So when I was a student in China in the 1970s, we had a bunch of guys all living in the same room and a table in the middle, and they would spread out the, the Go board and play Go. This was before internet and that sort of stuff. And uh, they would generously invite me to play sometimes, I think out of a feeling of compassion. Uh, I played a few games. And I never won a single game in all my four years living in that dormitory. Sometimes I would think that I was ahead uh, and you know, feel like finally I'm getting a, a grip on this game. And after a couple of hours, I would suddenly realize that I was going to be surrounded and trapped and lose. By the time I figured out that my situation was grave, it was too late and I always lost and they always won, just it took a long time. And you didn't know, you didn't appreciate, you know, where those little stones were going. What worries me is that we think we can address China's threats to our national security by playing checkers. But the Chinese Communist Party is playing a long game of Go. Very encouraging, Charles. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Malcolm, I'll turn to you. Well, thank you very much. Um, from an Australian perspective, uh, China represents the single greatest challenge to our national security and defence. Uh, and I think what you've seen in recent years has been a series of defence reviews and statements that have essentially addressed this challenge. The 2020 Defence Strategic Review um, essentially recognised the challenge posed by a rising China as a result, it ditched the traditional assumption of 10 years strategic warning time for a major power conflict involving Australia. That's no longer a basis for our planning. Uh, the, it recognised that um, Australia would play an increasing role alongside the US and its other allies. And so as a result of that, you've seen uh, us move from essentially the old ANZUS Treaty to uh, the AUKUS Agreement uh, on sharing of technologies. And now you have the 2023 Defence Strategic Review, which is due to be released 
in March uh, that is expected to move beyond the plan for structure uh, proposed in 2020 to emphasize long range strike capabilities uh, as a response to the growing power projection capabilities of the PLA. Uh, and I think the key scenario that we're all very much focused on is the Taiwan Straits and the potential for a major conflict occurring in the Taiwan Straits later this decade, potentially as early as 2026, 2027. Uh, the assumption being that the US would come to Taiwan's assistance in such a scenario and that, that we would work alongside the US, Japan, Taiwan and others uh, to respond to any attack across the Taiwan Straits. Um, so that traditional defence, uh, hard security um, focus is very much front and centre, but we're also very much focused on grey zone challenges uh, that are facing Australia. We've had a number of incidents uh, in the last year where Australian Defence Force units uh, operating on the high seas and in international airspace have been harassed uh, by Chinese military forces. So we had our RWFP-8 Poseidon aircraft over the South China Sea in international airspace uh, that was harassed by a Chinese fighter aircraft, which released chaff into its air intakes that could have brought the plane down. Uh, earlier in the same year, we had a PLA Navy destroyer uh, paint uh, one of our P8s with a high-powered laser in the Arafura Sea. So at the military level, there's grey zone actions that are occurring uh, below a level that would justify military response. But there's also grey zone activity occurring outside of the military domain. Uh, we're concerned about Chinese manipulation and coercion of, of Australian business and media elements, uh, influence operations within ethnic Austra uh, Chinese Australian groups and China's involvement in higher education in Australia, particularly in terms of seeking access to sensitive uh, research with military application. Um, so we are facing a challenge whereby China is waging political warfare against us. They have moved away from wolf warrior diplomacy uh, that has characterized China's approach in recent years, because I think that Beijing have recognized that that, that has become counterproductive so they are seeking to employ softer tactics and, and have a softer dialogue. However, their strategic ambitions have not changed. And I think the previous speaker um, did really highlight that, uh, that what they seek is dominance. They seek hegemony uh, across the Indo-Pacific region and beyond. Uh, and Taiwan is, is but the first step in that process. So even though uh, there is a, a, a discussion or a diplomacy occurring between Canberra and Beijing at the moment, we're not seeing this in terms of a reset in in the relationship that takes us back to the status quo ante of of the of the earlier in the decade uh, when we had better relations with China. The key strategic factors and challenges that we're facing with China remain, and we're facing challenges and pressures from Beijing in the grey zone as well as in traditional uh, military spheres as well. Um, there is uh, at the diplomatic level and in terms of lawfare uh, there in international fora, there's pressures on pressure by China on Australia's neighbours uh, to oppose Australian interests. They are particularly focused on challenging AUKUS. They do not like AUKUS at all. And so they are trying to get Southeast Asian states in particular to oppose AUKUS uh, to try and get us to shut that down, which we're not going to do. Uh, but certainly China is trying to shape the information space to coerce Australian policymakers to get us to divide from the United States and our allies and to accommodate 
uh, Beijing's interests. And I don't see this country ever doing that. Uh, there was in 2020, uh, the Chinese presented a list of 14 grievances to Australia, which were in fact 14 demands. Uh, and had we followed through with those 14 grievances, uh, then Australia would not be a free liberal democracy uh, uh, today. So I don't see us ever submitting to China's pressure uh, in that regard. Uh, we're also obviously very concerned about China's um, uh, activities in the uh, Southwest Pacific uh, in terms of gray zone activities, in terms of influence operations and presence in particular in relation to the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea, where the Chinese, I think, are very much focused on uh, generating influence and presence with a um, an agreement, a security agreement signed between Honiara and Beijing last year that would give the Chinese the right to establish a military base in the Solomon Islands, uh, a mere 2,000 kilometres off Australia's eastern seaboard. So that's the, the grey zone in, in, in a traditional sense. Uh, but there's also grey zone activities occurring in new domains, particularly in space and also in cyberspace. And for the rest of my remarks, I want to focus on, on that, in particular, the focus on space. Um, China seeks to become the dominant actor in the space domain uh, by 2049. It has the Chinese uh, space dream in this regard, uh, which is related to the China dream that uh, previous the previous speakers talked about. And it seeks to essentially supplant the United States in space in this regard and assert Chinese dominance on the high frontier. Uh, to this end, China is pursuing an ambitious space agenda that includes uh, not only traditional capabilities such as satellites and launch vehicles and now a, a human spaceflight program, but also counter space capabilities, anti-satellite weapons and an ability to undertake grey zone operations in orbit uh, using dual use capabilities. So there's China's developing a range of counter space capabilities, uh, soft kill, hard kill, uh, direct ascent from the Earth, co-orbital, ground-based, uh, that allows it to interfere with and deny space support to Australia and other key partners in a crisis or in wartime. But it's also developing a range of dual use capabilities that could be on the surface, could be um, civil or commercial and undertaking relatively innocent activities in terms of on orbit report, repair and refueling, uh, debris removal, um, uh, mitigation techniques, but also gives it essentially a covert uh, counter space capability through the use of civil and commercial um, uh, capabilities. Uh, there was an authoritative report released by the Center for Strategic and International Studies called Defense Against the Dark Arts in Space in 2021, which highlighted a range of scenarios in which dual-use space capabilities uh, could be employed in a gray zone operation in orbit, in which you would see a Chinese satellite move close to a US or, or a partner satellite uh, and interfere with it in some way. But this would be a commercial satellite, and so therefore, uh, may be seen as something below the level of military aggression. Um, so these sorts of rendezvous and proximity operations, or RPOs as they're called, uh, are becoming more and more commonplace. Uh, and both the Chinese and the Russians uh, are actually doing these sorts of activities uh, initially with their own satellites to develop the technologies, but ultimately that gives them the ability to interfere with our satellites in a future crisis. Alternatively, um, 
we could see a hostile actor such as China utilize co-orbital capabilities in space to undertake electronic warfare in terms of uplink and downlink jamming to disrupt our access to satellites uh, using microwave weapons from the surface uh, and, and probably the most worryingly use of cyber attack on satellites or satellite ground stations to uh, either take control of or e exploit satellites to gather intelligence or even disable them. So there's a range of, of activities that the Chinese are doing in terms of their counter space capability, uh, both in, in the open, but also in the gray zone that are, are quite concerning in terms of how we assure access to space in a future conflict, how we prevent um, a country like China from interfering with our critical space capabilities. And these are becoming more and more challenging and acute as we go forward. Um, and I think that when you look at counter space operations, um, ASATs, these are more likely to be, to be used in coordination uh, with cyber warfare against our critical information infrastructure as a nation, um, because that would generate um, the most uh, effective result whilst exploiting deniability by using third party non-state actors such as hackers. So what is our response to this? Um, I think that uh, we've recognized that uh, you know, we need to uh, adopt a different approach to space than what we've done in the past. In the past, we've essentially been content to rely on others to provide what's known as the upstream segment of space capabilities, which is the satellites, the launch vehicles, that sort of thing. Now we're recognizing that that, that, that dependency is actually problematic. So we're naturally move, now moving towards uh, being an active provider of, of our own space capabilities, of developing sovereign space capabilities. We've established um, Defense Space Command uh, to have a more coherent approach to space policy in what everyone is saying quite correctly is a highly contested and congested operational domain. Uh, we're seeing new sovereign capabilities emerge, greater cooperation with the Americans and with our other Five Eyes partners through the 2014 Combined Space Initiative uh, Space Operations Initiative or CSPO. Uh, and that I think is only going to grow in time to the point whereby uh, we will see uh, Australia burden sharing in orbit with partners, uh, not only by essentially doing space domain awareness, uh, but also by essentially launching satellites for not only ourselves, but also our partners to augment and reconstitute capabilities in a crisis to make it more difficult for the Chinese uh, to be able to attack our space capabilities in a what's often called a space Pearl Harbor that leads to a catastrophic collapse of space capability. So we are focused very much on space control uh, and deterrence in space. Uh, but at the same time, we're working with um, partners in the diplomatic and legal and regulatory environments to try and constrain uh, the risks of weaponization of space. And there's a range of UN uh, activities we're involved in, such as the open-ended working group on reducing space threats. Um, uh, there's, uh, uh, we've uh, basically declared that we would honor a ban on the testing of kinetic kill ASATs, which produce space debris. We did that in October of last year. China and Russia have refused uh, to do, do that so far. Um, so I think that what you're seeing is a series of legal and regulatory diplomatic approaches in multilateral fora by Australia that matches and parallels 
um, its approaches to space in terms of defense and deterrence and space control and our ability to generate sovereign space capabilities uh, to uh, assure that we have access to space in a contested space domain and also work with our partners in that regard. And in that sense, um, I think you are likely to see Australia take a more active role in space. Uh, the establishment of the Space Command in, in 2022, I think, could lead eventually down the track to a Royal Australian Space Force uh, following the path of the US with the US Space Force uh, on the basis that we are operating in a contested operational space domain where we are facing greater threats from the likes of China in space. Okay, I've just finished there, so I'm happy to hand over the floor. Thank you. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. Canada's national shipbuilder is currently hiring. For more information on the many jobs and opportunities currently available, please visit www.shipsforcanada.ca slash careers. Thank you very much, Malcolm. Um, so very upbeat start to the afternoon, uh, I gotta say. Um, so I'm gonna ask our speakers to step back a bit and and let's go back to Canada. So Canada published its uh, Indo-Pacific strategy very recently. And um, I, I wanted, after what you outlined, Malcolm, Australia, Kyoko, Japan, and uh, Charles, you, you talked about, about China, but I wanted to hear a little bit, and Malcolm, I'll start with you, the Australian perspective and reaction to Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, especially considering that uh, Australia ha and Canada have faced some similar uh, direct threats from on the non-traditional uh, security side uh, than Australia, but there are some parts that concern Australia, like the space domain, that really uh, are rather absent from, from the Indo-Pacific strategy. So what does Australia think about the new policy and how Canada is uh, approaching the, the problem? Uh, well, look, I'll, I'll jump in first. Um, uh, look, I, I, Canada is a vital partner and ally. Uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy, strategy, I think, is a very positive step forward in that regard. Um, and we need to um, sort of closely collaborate uh, across a range of issues, but both in terms of traditional defence and foreign policy, but also in terms of non-traditional areas of security. Grey zone is one of those. Um, China is going to confront both countries with more and more pressure in the grey zone. So we need to have closer collaboration in that regard. Um, I think that uh, you know, um, it, I'd be interested to hear the, my Canadian colleagues' uh, perspective on how Australia can best do that. But Signing agreements uh, such as AUKUS, I think, is, is a good way to go. Uh, and uh, there's already been dis dis discussions about how we could take that forward in terms of, for example, how does AUKUS relate to the Quad? And could we bring in other members to create a multilateral um, uh, security arrangement? Not necessarily a NATO in Asia, because I don't think that necessarily works, but certainly something uh, that is more joined up. Uh, and presents greater coordination, uh, you know, beyond the Five Eyes. Canada is part of the Five Eyes, but essentially building on the Five Eyes uh, to strengthen our our co common security. I'll let my co uh, Canadian colleagues uh, jump in. Charles, up to you. Well, you know, uh, so far the, the policy is rife with uh, inconsistencies. Uh, it seems that our government says different things to different people, so. You know, Minister Champagne goes to the United States and talks about decoupling and uh, 
Minister Jolie talks about friendshoring, and then we're told it's really all about China. That's what they tell me. But then, you know, you look at the press release that the explanatory document that came out of Global Affairs Canada after the strategic policy was released, and in almost 1800 words, the word China never appeared at all. So, like, what is it? You know, like, what exactly are we going to do? When is the clarifying document they're promising coming out? And will it actually contain significant measures? I mean, you know, one measure I'd like to see would be something comparable to Australia's Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act of 2019. Um, my understanding from talking to Australian friends who were closely associated with this is that it's not well drafted. Um, the Australian government did not allocate resources to enforce it, but the simple existence of the legislation has had a considerable dampening effect. And, you know, we saw Andrew Robb resigning $880,000 a year consultancies and other pleasing effects. We have nothing like this in Canada, and there seems to be a lot of resistance to actually implementing such a policy, nor have we seen any real meaningful action with regard to how we're going to ad address China's pervasive program of espionage in Canada, cyber espionage. I mean, will we ever have a single case where we have declared a single Chinese diplomat persona non grata for mediating police stations or harassment of Canadians or, um, you know, programs of other forms of espionage or any of the agents of the Chinese regime who don't have diplomatic cover being brought to be made accountable before Canadian law, so far nothing. I mean, the Subin case was a case of extradition by the United States. The, the most recent case in Hydro-Quebec is, uh, was you know not because of an efficient operation by the RCMP, but because the Hydro-Quebec security people detected this. Whether the alleged Chinese spy transferring these dual-use technologies to um, agents the Chinese state will be successfully prosecuted remains uncertain because our legislation with regard to the transfer of these technologies to agents of a foreign state is considerably weaker than that of our allies and there seems to be no political will to cut and paste a bit of British or US legislation to get us up to form. So, you know, in, in terms of the, the rhetoric, it's been great, but in terms of what Canada will actually be doing differently uh, with regard to meeting the the China challenge, uh, still unknown. And I'm worried that, uh, as uh, Dick Fadden was saying, uh, unless there are strong advocates in the cabinet, that the whole thing could just gradually fade away uh, by the time of the next election. So another positive thing, I I'm thinking of trying to get into some other venue of the human experience to be more life affirming, but I'm a bit old to retrain. <laughs> It's okay. We'll talk about more proactive measures that Canada can uh, can can pursue, and hopefully, it's going to be a tiny bit more optimistic. But uh, Kyoko, uh, from the Japanese state point, and especially from from your your view as someone that that works more on public diplomacy and and more track to exchanges, uh, what has been the perception of Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy? Oh yeah. Uh, as for the Canada's. Um, Indo-Pacific strategy from the Japanese, you know, uh, security point of view and diplomacy point of view. Uh, we, I mean, the, the Japanese government um, basically, of course, welcome the the uh, that the fact that um, uh, Canada is, uh, you know, 
move one step forward to using the exact term of the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy instead of using, you know, uh, Asia uh, Pacific or, uh, you know, I'm sorry, uh, Asian and uh, the other thing, um, because, uh, you know, Indo-Pacific means excluding China. And uh, the concept is um, of the uh, free and open Indo-Pacific is actually stated by the uh, former Prime Minister Abe, Shinzo Abe, in 2016, I guess. Uh, he, he talked about it in Africa at the conference, uh, African Development Conference, we call it TICAD conference. And uh, since then, the uh, former Prime Minister Abe um, tried to communicate with the world that, um, you know, uh, spread the, the, the concept of the uh, free and open Indo-Pacific, what we called FOIP. At the time, Canada, Canadian, you know, um, government, total administration, um, like, you know, uh, how can I say, like, a uh, bit um, agree, but disagree. Uh, in a negative tone, but um, uh, Japan feel like now we have Canada in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, which um, um, the which wants Canada to get involved in this region. But at the same time, of course, we have to like check if we, uh, if Canada's um, is really implement uh, the strategy what they like want in the Indo-Pacific region. And so in that in that sense, we have to you know uh, develop. In, public diplomacy activity more actively to Canada to uh, so that we have Canada in, in the Pacific, like uh, certainly. And also in terms of um, also Charles and also uh, Mr. Dr. Davis talk about a little bit about China's influence operation and also you, you talk about um, uh, police station a bit. And, we Japan, uh, Japanese government, also some uh, LDP party, uh, the ruling Demo uh, Democrat Party in Japan, LDP party, and also uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Japan, and as well as um, National Security Secretary, we call it uh, NSS, uh, gathered, I think, last month. Uh, to discuss about what's going on about um, uh, policy um, police station. Also, we we have we it is said we have two police station in Tokyo in Japan, and uh, the a lot of discussion has like been going on just started, but going on between the among the government about the issue. But at the same time, we have to um, divide what is influence operation or soft power diplomacy, soft power, soft power related diplomacy, we have to um, distinguish which is um, malicious, in, which has malicious intent or not. So yeah, this is the, for me, uh, as a researchers of the disinformation, also public diplomacy is, uh, it is one of the most difficult cases that we, how we can define uh, the actor has a malicious intent or not, so which is um, a very tough question, but uh, we have to uh, check and we have to uh, um, see look at uh, look into it carefully. This is my yeah, well, opinion and also Japanese opinion. I, I will stay with you, Kokyo, and, and pull that thread about political interference and, and disinformation uh, because it is, as you 
you seem to to say that there is that part in the new national security strategy of Japan putting the disinformation uh, issue as as a central domain in itself, as a cognitive domain. And, and you mentioned the issues with democracy and and freedom of speech. So it seems to me that, that Japan is, is thinking actively about this. Uh, and, and I like the term countermeasures to, to kind of protect uh, their society from, from that kind of influence. Can you outline a little bit more what Japan is proactively doing or not doing and you think should be doing to, to really protect society, despite that Galapagos effect that you mentioned, to really um, put up barriers to disinformation in a way that doesn't threaten democracy, because this is also the side effect sometimes that we overvalue security over, over certain freedoms. Thank you, Charlotte. It's a good question. Um, yeah, in terms of uh, Japanese perception of the security perception against disinformation, uh, um, also cognitive welfare, uh, as I said um, in my former remarks, that um, uh, Japan has been lagging far behind in terms of counter disinformation measures. Uh, if I compare with another um, Western countries, for instance, uh, Canada, as well. Um, but uh, Japan uh, also at the same time, it is true that uh, Japan has, uh, you know, uh, I, I would say enjoy its um, uh, barrier, uh, let's say uh, linguistic barrier and also uh, cultural bar barrier uh, from other countries. So we haven't had experience with serious uh, foreign disinformation uh, activities or, or impact. Uh, neither in uh, Japanese um, internal policy or neither in nor Japanese society. But at the same time, if the technology de develops, for instance, um, uh, AI translation and interpretation technology, we we won't be able to enjoy this barrier anymore. So we have to Japanese government policymakers, also scholars and researchers, understand well about we haven't had enough um, like protections or uh, any countermeasures against disinformation. So uh, as, a, as a researcher, a Japanese researcher, I myself uh, experience, has experienced so much like, you know, offers uh, from other Western countries, think tankers that uh, let's uh, conduct some joint research against disinformation uh, campaigns, so on and so forth. But um, at that time, uh, let's say since 2020, the COVID uh, pandemic just started. Uh, at the time of the COVID pandemic, I uh, couldn't done like anything because uh, we haven't, ha we hadn't like had enjoyed any countermeasures activity at the time of Japanese government. So, yeah, I, I it, like assess this step is like huge step for Japan. But um, uh, now the, the Japan, Japan, Japanese government is thinking that um, they, we have a uh, NSS, uh, National Security uh, Secretariat under the cabinet office. And they is uh, thinking that the uh, NSS is going to be a, how can I say, like, uh, manage the uh, minister uh, related ministries and um, the organization to how we can, like, uh, you know, conduct the countermeasures with the, you know, uh, 
like uh, with the and uh, the related agencies and uh, organization but we just like uh, standing at the start line so we have to um like learn uh, or maybe we can conduct lessons learned from with the uh, japanese uh, allies and partners in terms of how we can conduct um um, counter disinformation campaign, countermeasures uh, in terms of um, uh, in, in order to protect our democracy. And we, we maybe we could uh, down by lessons learned, we can uh, learn lessons and bad lessons on or maybe uh, some actual um, disinformation cases. Um, but uh, yeah, now, now we, I would say we can, we stand at the start line, but we haven't conducted. We we were still figuring out how we can, like you know, uh, move um, this motive and movement forward into Japan. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgai.ca/support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. Thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.